0: Hello, I am Enraged Eggplant. Welcome to the third episode of Only the Parts You Need, a GURPS podcast. We will be talking about two topics this episode. First up is the detailed analysis of Sorcery, and second, Legendsmith will teach you how to quickly create non-player characters. Sorcery is one of the pre-made Magic S Power systems using power building rules from GURPS Powers. Initially, it was published in Pyramid Issue 63 but then it was reprinted in its own dedicated Gerb's Taumatology Sorcery book with slight alterations. Sorcery has received some support in Pyramid issues 82 and 105, and then had its grimoire expanded in GURPS Sorcery Protection and Warring spells. Let's start at the beginning and explain how it all works mechanically. The main advantage for Sorcery is Sorcery's Empowerment, that was estimated by creating a custom modular ability. Note that it's priced differently in Pyramid issue 63 and GURPS Taumatology Sorcery. In the former case, it cost 18 points for level 1 plus 9 points per additional level, while in the latter case, it was slightly reworked by adding an extra plus 20% en- enhancement, that increase the cost to 20 points for level 1, plus 10 points per additional level. gerstamatology Sorcery has a sidebar that de- describes this internal structure and suggests against modifying it, treating Sorcerer's Empowerment as its own trait. I have gone against this suggestion a few times, and I will explain why later. Sorcerer's Empowerment can be limited by Colleges and Scope. That's practically the same thing. The next component is Sorcery Talent. It costs 10 points per level or 5 points per level if your sorcerer's empowerment is limited in scope. As with all other talents, Sorcery Talent adds to every role made to cast a sorcerer's spell and to occultism and taumatology roles when answering questions about magic. Don't forget to set a level cap. Sorcery talent has another function. You add the hire of sorcerer's empowerment and sorcery talent to will when your spells must resist counter magic. Never knew the part about adding sorcerer's empowerment until I began writing this script. We're not done here yet. One thing that is often forgotten is that the subject's size modifier cannot exceed the caster's size modifier plus sorcery talent. This can be very important. The book, also known as Magic Resistance, is somewhat weaker against sorcerers, because many sorcerer's spells do not require a casting roll. Only casting roles are affected, not roles made to use the spell, such as innate attack. The last component is the spells themselves. They are bought as alternative abilities to sorcerer's empowerment. Put simply, this means 1. The full cost of the spell cannot exceed the cost of the caster's sorcerer's empowerment. 2. The sorcerer pays only one-fifth of the full cost of the spell, rounded up, when learning the spell. 3. The sorcerer can only use one spell at a time, but we'll talk about that in more details later. Let's talk about the structure of a spell now. Every spell is defined by the following. 1. Name. That's obvious. 2 Keywords, we'll talk about them later 3 Full cost, this is the full cost before it is divided by 5 when learning the spell 4 Casting role, many spells have no role to cast and some have additional roles such as attack rolls with 8 attack. All of those benefit from source the talent 5 Range, this can be either a static number or self or unlimited. In case of unlimited range, by default assume the range penalty is from basic set page 550. 6. Duration. This can be a fixed duration, permanent, indefinite, which means that the spell lasts as long as the caster maintains it, or truly permanent, which means that the spell is permanent but is not vulnerable to countermagic. 7. Casting cost. Sorcery assumes that all spells cost 1 FP to use for the sake of simplicity, uniformity and reduction of bookkeeping. If you can handle some additional bookkeeping, you can assign different costs to spells, but do not remove it. The lack of casting cost would make the sorcerers feel more like superheroes, who can use their abilities whenever they want and as many times as they want without running out of gas. 8. Casting time. Again, sorcery assumes that all spells take one or two seconds to cast. We will talk about that more in depth later. If you can add additional bookkeeping, you could assign different casting times to spells. 9. Description. 10. Statistics. Those are specific game mechanics behind the spell. Casting a known spell requires the caster to take two concentrate maneuvers or just one, if he is repeating the same spell he last cast. If the spell requires an attack roll, then the last maneuver changes to the one that allows attacks, such as attack or all-out attack. This additional concentrate maneuver to switch the spell is justified by the standard rules for alternative abilities, as defined in Gerb's Power-Ups 8 limitations, with slight alterations. It always takes a full second to switch spells, even when switching between two attack spells. But this is balanced by allowing the sorcerer to maintain multiple copies of the same spell. One vaguely defined rule is that casting a spell is a single continuous action that can be interrupted, forcing the caster to spend two seconds to concentrate again. Typically, he cannot switch to another spell in advance. If he does not mind spending FP and the spell is harmless enough, he could cast it, for example, into the sky in a non-combat situation to switch to the spell. However, Jason Levine, the author, says that switching can be done for free and in advance if you want it. By default, you have to only concentrate to cast the spell. You do not have to wave your hands around or chant, making your casting obvious. This might not be the flavor you are looking for, so the book provides the alternative rituals rules. To cast a spell, the sorcerer must meet two of the following three requirements. Pay 1 FP, perform obvious physical gestures, or speak an obvious ritual chant. This makes casting far less subtle and makes the casters more easily countered by silencing or binding them. In addition, this allows other characters with magical knowledge to identify spells that are being cast with an Occultism or Automatology role at –4 if the caster is only chanting or gesturing. If you are using spells that cost more than 1 FP, then these requirements replace only 1 FP from the full cost. Note that even if the sorcerer paid no FP when casting the spell, the maintenance still costs 1 FP per minute. The super Sorcery article from Pyramid issue 105 adds extra options for alternative rituals like paying 1 HP, selling a part of your soul, manifesting obvious fleshy arcane signs when casting the spell, or invoking a deity's name. It is suggested that the character picks the rituals from the list of available ones during character generation. This is a permanent alteration of the way he works his magic. The choice of rituals can add a lot of flavor and tactical considerations. The same article provides rules for situations where the caster can pick from more than three rituals, stronger versions of the rituals, and uh, allows picking the FP or HP spending ritual multiple times. This allows for subtle spellcasting. However, as stated by Jason Levine, the creator of the sorcery system, experience has shown that it can be unbalancing for sorceries to invoke alternative rituals to cast repeated spells with no FP cost in a fight. Because of that, he suggests the following rule. Every sorcerer's spell with no FP cost takes the longer of normal casting time or 1d plus 1 divided by 2 seconds to cast round up. Roll for this when beginning to cast. If you don't like the result, you can abort, wasting your action this turn. In most non-combat situations, you can simply ignore this limitation. Personally, I like this house roll and use it in my games. The next step is making a casting roll, if it is required. A critical success eliminates the spell's FP cost and provides additional benefits, something around a plus 50% increase in effectiveness. Failure means that the spell fizzles. FP spent on it is lost, but the sorcerer can try again at no penalty. A critical failure causes the caster to lose 1d FP have his sorcery shut down for 1d seconds, or something equally bad to happen. When casting a leveled spell, the caster can opt to use extra effort by making a will plus talent roll at minus 4 per added level. Success raises the effective level of the spell for this particular casting, costs 1 extra FP, but does not take extra time. A critical failure makes the caster lose 1d FP, and his sorcery shuts down for 1d seconds. Typically, this extra effort option is only available for non-spells, but the GM can allow it for improvised spells too, but never for spells cast with hardcore improvisation. The super sorcery article from Pyramid issue 105 adds optional rules for applying even more extra effort. Now that I've mentioned it, let's talk about improvisation. This feature is what makes sorcerers flexible. A sorcerer may improvise any spell with a full cost no greater than his Sorcerer's Empowerment level. This makes sorcerers that limit their Sorcerer's Empowerment by scope or colleges able to improvise stronger spells than their peers with unlimited Sorcerer's Empowerment, because their level will be higher, despite spending the same amount of points. Otherwise, casting an improvised spell works just like casting a normal spell. There's also Hardcore Improvisation that is stronger but much more difficult. Hardcore Improvisation lets the sorcerer Improvise a spell based on the cost of his Sorcerer's Empowerment rather than its level. This requires no additional time, but requires at least 3 extra FP. After the first counter-trade maneuver, the caster pays 3 FP and rolls against his Will plus talent. He may substitute Will-based taumatology for Will, if better. This roll takes the following modifiers. Minus 4 if the full cost of the spell is no more than 25% of the cost of your sorcerer's empowerment, minus 6 if no more than 50%, minus 8 if no more than 75%, and minus 10 if higher, up to 100%. Plus 1 for every additional FP you spent above and beyond the free FP required, but this can only offset the penalty for the spell cost, not provide a net bonus. If the caster succeeds, he improvises the spell for a single casting. On a critical success, he recovers all FP spent on improvisation and gets a plus 1 bonus to any rolls to cast or use the spell. He still has to cast the spell paying its normal FP cost and make it all required rolls. If he fails the casting roll, he'll have to improvise the spell again. Not that casting a spell improvised this way does NOT switch you to the spell, you still have to take two concentrate maneuvers to cast it again. If your improvisation roll results in a critical failure, then your sorcery shuts down for the next 1D minutes. If you have GURPS powers, feel free to use the more complex crippled abilities rules. The most important thing about improvisation that is often overlooked is the improvisational limits. The GM should restrict Sorcery to an approved grimoire for the campaign, declaring that only this spell can be learned or improvised. If he allows Sorcery to improvise completely new spells, then such spells must make sense as new general spells for the setting with general being the keyword here. Ignoring this part will make the sorcerers way too powerful and flexible and probably will ruin the whole experience. Before I start talking about the spell types, I'd like to talk about simultaneous spells and spell maintenance. The huge discount on known spells stems from the alternative abilities rules. The sorcerer can only maintain one spell at a time, at least by default. He can increase this limit by paying the full cost of his most expensive known spell. This way he'll be able to maintain two spells at once. To maintain three spells, he must pay full cost for two of his most expensive spells, and so on. The Super Sorcery article from Pyramid issue 105 adds optional rules for more flexibility – partial sorcerer's empowerment and fractional full cost. It sh- should also be noted that since sorcery is built using the alternative abilities rules, anything that disables one ability, disables the whole collection regardless of the number of slots as per GURPS power-ups 8 limitations. This includes crippling sorcery with a critical failure, overexerting yourself with a spell based on warp, or being affected by neutralize. However, if you are casting a spell that is based on an advantage that can be activated until its duration expires, such as luck or neutralize with the power theft enhancement, then you are freezing only that slot. You may continue to swap other abilities into your remaining slots. If you have only one slot, then your entire array is disabled for the duration. Some spells require maintenance, if a spell has an indefinite duration, then it lasts as long as the sorcerer maintains it, paying 1 FP per minute. This requires no special actions. While the sorcerer maintains a spell, he cannot cast other spells, unless he paid some extra points as I have explained before. Spells with any other kind of duration do not require maintenance. I've heard people say that a buff spell is dispelled once the caster switched to another spell, but this is wrong. If you are using Jason Levin's House rules. Cost fatigue should be minus 10% per level instead of minus 5%. Therefore, the version bundled into the sorcery power modifier needs to be weakened slightly. As such, all indefinite spells cost 1 FP every 10 minutes instead of every minute. Now let's talk about spell types, the things that go into the keywords field of the spell. They are used as a shorthand to indicate which special rules apply without writing them out every time. Area spells have a fixed, leveled or special areas. These effects are placed at uh, 4 for aiming at an area. Note that an area has a height of 4 yards. If the area depends on the spell's level, then the caster can always opt to affect a smaller radius. One thing that is new to me, that you calculate range from the sorcerer to the edge of an area, not the center. Buff spells apply beneficial traits to others. The caster makes an innate attack gaze roll to hit the subject from afar. If the location hit has DR, with no tough skin limitation, then the subject has to make an HT roll at a penalty equal to that DR for the buff to work. Magic resistance forces the subject to roll against HT even if he has no DR and penalizes this roll. It should be also noted that buffing unwilling subjects works differently in Pyramid 3, and GURPS Taumatology Sorcery. If using the Pyramid rules, then the unwilling subject can resist by rolling against HT as normal, but if you are using updated rules from GURPS Taumatology Sorcery, then the Unwilling Subject resists buff spells automatically. This is important, because some buff spells provide situationally negative traits. I remember using buff spells to turn enemies into piles of leaves. That was a mistake, don't do that. One other thing I haven't noticed before is that uh, buff spells lack the underwater enhancement. This means that they only can be used as a touch spells underwater. This is very important if you are playing in an aquatic campaign. If you want to make an area buff spell, remember how DR works against such abilities. This will force subjects who have even a single piece of armor with no tough skin to make ht rolls to be affected. Build such spells with Malediction, like area-resisted spells. INFORMATION, JET, OBVIOUS, RESISTED, and WEAPON buff spells do not have anything SPECIAL worth talking about. I'll just say that I see no reason not to introduce ARMOR buff spells. If you do make such spells, remember that spells typically affect discrete objects, so only a single piece of armor will be affected, not the whole suit. Some more things should be mentioned before I get to the juicy parts. Mana dependency of the spells is worded slightly differently in Pyramid 363 and Gerb's Taumatology Sorcery, although the plus 3 to resist resisted spells in low mana might be just an interpretation of half effectiveness. Consult your GM prior to the game on this topic. The other one is the damage limit. Girl's Traumatology Sorcery provides its own guidelines on how to limit damage of spells based on the damage of an optimized character could inflict at range. Pyramid 3.82 introduces the Sorcerer template for Dungeon Fantasy and limits damage based on Sorcery talent, and Jason Levin on his blog suggests limited damage based on the Sorcerer's Empowerment level. The link to the post will be provided in the description. The book also provides rules for improving spells, deprecating spells when gaining new levels of sorcerer's empowerment, and quite extensive rules on enchanting that can be used to estimate the dollar cost of gadgets even if you are not using sorcery at all. The system might serve as an alternative to metatronic generators from Pyramid 346 or as an additional option. Depending on the flavor you are aiming for, you might want to limit spell improvement somewhat. For example, if sorcery is an inborn ability, then it would make sense letting sorcerers improve their powers in any reasonable way they want. But if sorcery represents study of arcane formulas and static spells, then even changing the spell's duration might require learning a separate spell. In any case, do not let the sorceress remove the spell's FP cost. I have talked about the system's upsides and downsides in the first episode, and explained how the system works in detail here. And now I'd like to talk about customizing sorcery. The sorcery system out of the box provides a way to make spellcasters that fling spells quickly and almost effortlessly, as if it was their second nature. It does provide an option for limiting spell access, but does not go beyond that. Many stories and settings feature many different uh, magical traditions. And while you can represent them with different magic systems in Gerb's, you could always make unique traditions or subsystems just by modifying the sorcerer's empowerment advantage and or spells available to these traditions. There's three aspects of sorcery that you can modify. 1. sorcerer's Empowerment. Modifying this advantage can change the scope of the magical abilities available and how you improvise them. 2. Spells. Restricting spells to a certain form, changing their power modifier. All that can change how your magic works. 3. Special Rules allowing a forbidding certain powers-related special rules from GURPS powers can add some extra flavor. Let's go over the applicable modifiers. Quite often in fiction, mages require to perform arcane gestures and pronounce incantations. While the default alternate rituals allow that, you can force the sorcerer to use them by applying required gestures and or required magic words limitations to the spells not sorcerer's empowerment. In addition, you can apply requires material component if the caster must hold a specific object in hand to cast the spell, or trigger if this object is also expanded. These limitations make sorcery feel more like magic than like superpowers, but allow the opponents to counter the sorcerer's abilities by restricting his speech or movements. But perhaps that is exactly what you are looking for. If these requirements apply to all spells, then they can be combined with the existing power modifier. If they vary from spell to spell, then you have to spell them out separately. You might want to switch the base attribute for spell casting by applying based on different attribute own roll enhancement to spells that need it. This allows you to replace the spell's casting role, that's more often than not either IQ or Will, to dexterity, health, perception, or even a calculated base. This can represent the caster channeling his inner life force, spotting the flow of mana in ley lines, or something else. But be careful, as this enhancement can have unforeseen consequences. Consult the magic based on other attributes section in GURPSaumatology, pages 29 to 31. The fifth attribute article by Christopher R. Rice from Pyramid 3120 has guidelines on basing sorcery spell on quintessence, a new attribute introduced in the article. Although I'm not completely sure why it is suggested to add the based on quintessence plus 20 enhancement to buff spells instead of requires quintessence roll, minus 10% limitation. Backlash. Is an interesting limitation. Applying it to sorcerer's empowerment will make improvisation more risky and dangerous in combat, but can represent you overloading your magical abilities. If you apply it to the spells, then spell casting itself becomes very unpleasant, probably too much. Cardiac stress and cerebral stress can do the same, but with a risk of death. I suggest against applying it to spells, but it could be fun to apply it to sorcerer's empowerment. Sorcery has a sidebar about making spells with high FP cost. And if that is not enough for you, you can also make some spells cost HP, or make all spells cost HP, but remember that the Blood Magic Alternate Ritual from Pyramid 105 exists. The Corrupting limitation from GURPS Horror is very flavorful and customizable, fit for both spells and sorcerer's empowerment. It is especially fitting for divine or spiritual sorcerous traditions. Adding fickle makes it even better. If you want to limit the out-of-combat utility of sorcerers, consider applying the emergencies-only limitation to sorcerous empowerment. There are other ways making sorcery a trait that is granted by other beings. Consider using the pact granted by other or gadget limitations, maybe even a combination of them. Also, you should keep in mind that if you are planning to replace the power modifier with, say, Divine, then you should disassemble the Sorcerer's Empowerment Advantage, because it already includes the Magical power modifier. This is simple with other –10% power modifiers, but it can create problems with other power modifiers. For example, if you want to replace Magical –10% with Nature –20% for a Druidic spellcaster, Then you should come up with a way to compensate those uh, 10% that are left with something. So you don't have to worry about fractional final point costs. I use Reliable 2 to make hardcore improvisation easier, but maybe you can come up with something better. You can change the time it takes to cast or improvise spells by applying takes extra time or immediate preparation required. Applying the latter to Sorcerer's Empowerment can greatly decrease the Sorcerer's flexibility in combat, but leave his out-of-combat utility relatively unharmed. On the other hand, you can apply Takes Recharge, Limited Use or Periodic Recharge to let the Sorcerer's improvise once or twice in combat. Nuisance effect and accessibility can do almost anything you can imagine. There's a wide array of things you can do with them from allowing the sorcerer to cast or improvise spells only at night to limiting him to spells written in his spellbook to whatever you can imagine. In addition, consider looking through the Powers in Action chapter in Girl's Powers and decide what rules apply to sorcery or to specific magical traditions in your game. These combinations can greatly enhance the flavor. Specialized critical failure tables from Girl's Taumatology and Girl's Magic could work too. In the most extreme cases, you can also replace Sorcerous Empowerment with a different type of modular abilities, using the rules from GURPS powers. There's 11 spell-based traditions on my blog, but I use even more in my games. What can I say, I love kitchen sinks. Every tradition in use is somewhat limited, as the experience showed that straight, unlimited sorcery feels a little too powerful for my tastes. On the other hand, My gaming group frequently points out how damp and unbalanced some of my rulings are, so take everything I say here with a grain of salt. I have not seen many other people create their own variants, but one sorcery based system I found is Dungeon Sorcery by Rindis. It gives sorcery an old-school AD&D feel, and I suggest you to check it out. The link will be provided in the description. I believe that's all I have to say for now and I hope that you now understand how Sorcery works, just how flexible it really is, and how you want to adjust it for your game.
1: Creating NPCs is something every GM needs to do. GURPS has a variety of pre-made NPCs spread throughout the books, but custom NPCs are of course completely necessary. A trap that many new Gerp's GMs can fall into is trying to stat every NPC out as though they were a player character. This should only be reserved for recurring NPCs such as allies, dependents and major enemies such as main villains and potentially their lieutenants. Studying these is like studying a player character of course, so we'll leave villain design for another episode. This episode will mainly focus on enemy NPCs for combat. So how do we stat NPCs for encounters? The method varies by genre So I'll focus on fantasy at first, since that's what many people are familiar with. Before I continue, I have to mention a Pyramid article titled It's a Threat by Christopher Rice from Pyramid issue 377. This article provides a system for assessing combat effectiveness ratings of players and enemies. I recommend it, even though it's not perfect, as it's a good rule of thumb. The rules in GURPS Action 2, Exploits, also has a lot of resources for how to speed things up. I can't recommend it strongly enough. Now, that aside, making NPCs. With enemy NPCs, it's a good idea to think about and decide how much damage they can deal first and how good they are at delivering it, since this will determine much of the player's behavior. You can categorize enemy damage into five broad categories, minimal, which is one or two damage, minor, which is more than minimal but less than a major wound, major which is a major wound, knockout which is full HP of damage taking them to 0 or less, and lethal which is instant death or niso. An enemy that can only defeat the player's armour on a maximum damage roll is not much of a threat, it's minor damage and so can be deployed in large numbers. Players will be able to wade into combat and to enjoy a sense of power, though they also can be used to provide pressure. Enemies that can beat the player armour a little over half the time is a good measure if you're trying to provide more of a challenge. For example, an enemy that deals 1d plus 4 cutting damage against 6dr. About 65% of the time they will defeat this armour and deal 1 damage, and about half the time they'll defeat the armour and deal 2 damage, which equates to 3 injury passed armour. That's more significant and it can help introduce new players especially, because they're not getting hit for all their health. Another example is an enemy that deals 2d6 damage against, again, players that have 6dr. About 60% of the time, these enemies will roll 7 damage, which is minimal. It might be 2 damage if they're using impaling weapons. However, about 40% of the time they will deal more. This makes them less of a threat, as dice adds are more reliable than extra dice. As hits can be rare past defences, don't be afraid to allow for usual minor wounds with major as a max roll potential. Additionally, keep in mind damage types. Impaling damage is double injury to the torso but not the limbs, whereas cutting is 1.5 times everywhere except the neck where it's more. Now enemies that can deal significant damage, such as taking a player character from full HP to 0 in one hit through armour or dismembering them with a with a major wound should be handled with care, especially if they themselves die in a few hits. This can turn the battle into a contest of who hits first, which can be frustrating if not handled correctly. Unready weapons such as poleaxes and other pole arms, are a decent choice here, since while they deal devastatingly high damage, they suffer from being unready and thus only able to hit every other turn. This can give player characters openings and teach them tactics where they want to go on the defensive and then attack once the polearm wielder has swung. Also take into account the player's active defenses. If this is a low level campaign, they might not amount to much. For enemies, they should have a melee skill of 12 to 13 for most mooks. This enables them to hit most of the time and keep the players on their toes. Elites may take higher skill levels, such as 16, and use deceptive attacks and feints in order to lower player character defences. A skill level of 16 means that said elites can have a better chance of hitting by lowering their skill level to 12 with a deceptive attack in order to penalise defenders by 2, since deceptive attacks use a 2 to 1 ratio. They can also target chinks in armour in order to get through high player damage resistance. However, even weaker enemies can be a threat, especially if they outnumber the players, and grapple and pin too. Enemies that grapple and put player characters in a place where they need help from their teammates. This is a great way to encourage teamwork and look out for each other. I recommend the grappling rules from Douglas Cole's Hall of Judgment, but that's a topic for another episode. I personally use technical grappling by the same author though. Furthermore, Outnumbering the players allows enemies to outflank the players. This is important. You cannot defend against an attack you cannot see or sense. This is of course terrain dependent. Try to provide options for players to exploit in any combat, but especially against a numerically superior force, remember? An attack from behind can claim a telegraphic bonus for plus 4 to hit without giving the enemy the usual dodge bonus since they can't see it coming. This can be combined with all-out attack determined, or all-out attack strong too, for devastating knockout blows. The skull is only minus 5 to hit from behind, so this vulnerable location is far more easily targeted by flanking enemies. Additionally, parry is often the best defense, but it's at minus 2 to defend on the opposite side the weapon is held in, meaning two enemies to each side is considerably harder to defend against, though defensive grips can mitigate this from martial arts. If dealing with extra large numbers of enemies, the horde rules from gurp zombies are great. These don't suit every enemy type, but large numbers of tightly packed enemies are what it is meant for, so it can suit masses of melee foes. That's a lot to keep in mind, but remembering skill level, enemy toughness, and damage compared to player defences is the meat of it. The final thing is enemy defences. The longer an enemy survives, the longer they might get a hit in. The way to think about this is the same as enemies' damage compared to player defences, but in reverse. GURPS is deadly, so having enemies that go down in 1, 2 or 3 hits isn't too bad. As advised in the books, it's a good idea not to make health rolls for every single enemy. Make them only for the important bosses and the like. Others can be assumed to fail their health check check at zero and fall unconscious, but You needn't assume that they're dead, if a mook is reduced to a death threshold you can call them dead, or if you like more suspense you can secretly roll for the deaths at the end of combat. If they survive, perhaps they can reappear. Previously wounded enemies making an appearance later can be a great way to spice up combat with grudges and make the players think about making sure their enemies are dead. When I make an enemy NPC, I just need their 4 primary stats their basic speed and move, and a few weapon and combat skills, and then they give them a wild card skill or two that suits their particular archetype. For example, a soldier may have strength 12, dexterity 10, IQ 10, health 11, and the skills spear 13, brawling 13, wrestling 12, and the wild card skill soldier at 11 or 12. The leader of this group may have leadership or tactics at 11 too. Their strength and spear weapon give them a damage of 1d plus 2 with their spears and 1d minus 1 with their punches. I can say that they have a simple jack of plates armour for dr3 and their move is 5 or if their armour is heavier their move will be 4. That's all I need to write down. No need to worry about point value, what matters is their effectiveness. If this spearman is up against the player character of the 6dr armour, the spearman will be in trouble. A character with weapon skill 16 and 60R 6 can take quite a few hits from these spearmen. For a newer GM, I recommend making a cheat sheet that contains the damage adds of a few common weapons, a strength table of strength 9 to 14 or so, and a few armor values with the usual move that an enemy wearing them has. This means you can easily have the combat relevant parts of fodder enemies on hand all the time to put together as you need. Back to the Spearmen for a moment. They can pose differing levels of threat depending on how the GM plays them. I mentioned the leader. More competent NPC leaders is another great way to spice up combat. Consecutive blocks and parries incur large penalties, so if these Spearmen were fighting superior player characters, they may be ordered by a good leader to target one player to wear them down. They're not telepathic though. So having their leader shout the orders means the characters have warning of the onslaught. Shouted commands from NPCs is an excellent way to make extra languages valuable in combat too. If the enemies are foreigners, they won't speak the player's character's common tongue. Alternatively, these spearmen under an incompetent leader will be disorganized and unfocused, making the fight easier. Player characters may wish to focus on eliminating competent enemy leaders to make fights easier and this kind of tactics can be really fun for the players. A final note is on special powers. Damaging powers are straightforward. You can simply work out the threat level that they can exert in the way I mentioned earlier. Enemies that can deal lethal hits with powers should be rare, have cooldowns or wind-ups, or be able to be parried. Special powers can be used to to spice up fights a lot. A great way to think about it is consider enemy powers that force the players to help each other out, but try to avoid things that make all but one player obsolete. For example, flight if only one person has a ranged attack. But letting individual players shine is also good, such as a magic enemy against a player wizard with the dispel. The other characters need to keep their wizard safe lest they be at a large disadvantage. Now here's another example, a vine ogre. This was created as a boss fight for my group, which consists of four 400 point characters and their followers. The vine ogre is supposed to be very threatening, thus I gave it a powerful attack, a 2d plus 7 giant axe. There are some tough characters in the party, including some with dr over 8. Axe attack is a very powerful attack capable of bringing a player character down to zero in one hit even with their powerful defences, but it's not guaranteed. Still, in light of this, I made it an unready weapon. This lends a sense of pondering power to the fight and means that it's not an omnipresent threat. I use the teamwork rules too, so the player characters can help shield each other if they're close together. However, there is another threat. The Vine Ogre has two binding attacks and a shield. It can always shield bash as this is not an unready weapon, though this deals far less damage at 1d plus 2 crushing. The binding is strength 8 but can be layered. It's also vulnerable to cutting and fire. The shield is merely a slab of bark and wood and so it can be destroyed or set on fire. It has a defence bonus 3, DR3 and HP 66. At HP 33, its defense bonus drops by 1. Finally, the Vine Ogre has a Thorn Burst attack that has a 5 second cooldown, but is vulnerable to being destroyed. The Thorn Fruit swell and burst to shower a large AoE with thorns that inflict moderate pain, but the fruits can be destroyed by just 1 point of damage before it's finished swelling. To top it all off, the Vine Ogre can use 2 attacks every turn, one of them being a binding attack. This means that the players always have to deal with the threat of being immobilised, and they can't ignore it. Since it's made of plant matter, it is homogenous and lacks blood and a brain, but it does have vitals. The idea is that the players must work together, freeing each other from vines and making sure to destroy the bursting thorn fruit. The shield can be destroyed by main force or bypassed. While the axe is ponderous, the vine ogre is skilled, it has skill 16 for all its attacks and will often use a deceptive attack on its axe wing. It has a dodge 9, plus 3 of its shield for 11 and a parry of 14. This is quite high, but my player characters are very skilled, so they are expected to use deceptive attacks and feints. It is huge as a size modifier of plus 3, so it is easier to hit too, meaning that even more effective deceptive attacks can be used. If its shield is destroyed, The dodge and parry both drop as well, as it is no longer in the way. I hope to have an after-action report of the battle with this enemy, but unfortunately for that plan, my players managed to use diplomacy to reach a non-violent solution. If you're listening, don't feel bad about it. Let's talk about NPCs in general now. I plan to cover this in greater detail in future episodes though. Major recurring NPCs, such as a party's main patron, Recurring allies and anyone they are likely to fight alongside more than once should often be statted as full characters, though shortcuts can be made. The most important shortcut is the use of wildcard skills. For example, an important diplomat NPC may have the diplomat wildcard skill. This lets him do diplomacy, know international law, and attend diplomatic functions, manage an embassy and its staff, and negotiate treaties. Attending diplomatic functions may include the use of skills such as connoisseur, but diplomat will cover that because he's at a diplomatic function. But it wouldn't let him defend himself even if the embassy was attacked. He'd need a regular weapon skill for that. More minor characters can be created with wildcards too. An NPC needn't be more than four primary stats, a disadvantage if relevant, and a wild card skill that encompasses their primary role. In a future episode, I'll go far more into detail with general NPCs and how to create lots of NPCs with differing trades at once. Thanks for listening.